Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. In this special episode, Michigan Medicine social media strategist Ed Bottomley sits down with gynecologic oncologists Dr. Shetanshu Upal and Dr. Rebecca Liu to talk about ovarian cancer. I'd like to introduce you to our panelists, Dr. Rebecca Liu and Dr. Shitansu Upal. Uh, if you guys could just give me uh, a few uh, seconds on your expertise in this field, Dr. Upal. So I'm one of the GYN oncologists. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of Michigan, and I'm also a co-director for Michigan Oncology Quality Consortium, uh, which is one of the collab quality, uh, uh, collaborative quality improvement um, effort by the university to improve the uh, uh, quality of care for ovarian cancer. Um, so I'm also associated with the medical school. Um, and we also run the fellowship in training the new generation of G1 oncologists. Fantastic. Thank you. Dr. Lee? I'm also a G1 oncologist at the University of Michigan. I've been at University of Michigan since 1999. Uh, I practice both at University of Michigan and St. Joseph Mercy Hospital and do research in ovarian cancer. I also work on the Michigan Oncology Quality Consortium with Dr. Upal. Um, we try to involve all of the G1 oncologists in the state to improve the quality of care for ovarian cancer patients. Um, so I hope that you will participate, participate with us. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to have both of you with us here today. Let's go straight into the questions. So our first question, uh, a straightforward one here, what is ovarian cancer. Perhaps it isn't a straightforward one. What is ovarian cancer? <laughs> I don't think it's really that straightforward. <laughs> there are many types of ovarian cancer. There's sort of a continuum. Uh, some ovarian cancers are diagnosed in very young women, in their you know teens, 20s, and some are diagnosed um, in women who are postmenopausal. When we think about ovarian cancer, I think most people think about uh, epithelial ovarian cancer diagnosed in women around the age of 60 to 65. And it's also known as the silent killer, uh, which is a good opportunity to talk about uh, symptoms of ovarian cancer. Um, most people call it the silent killer because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very vague. People may uh, have kind of bloating, indigestion, pelvic pressure, maybe some sort of urinary problems, which is you know, everybody's had those at one time or another. The key with ovarian cancer is that these uh, symptoms persist. And I like to think about this sort of how the people in the airline industry um, have a checklist, you know, when they, they go through their flights. And if anybody thinks that something is off, they stop and check it. So I think that people should really do this for themselves. You know your own body. If you think something is off and you're whatever doctor you see, think you know, says there's nothing wrong, but you still feel like something's off, check it out. Go to your gynecologist. Thank you for that. Dr. Upa, anything to, to add? No, I think, you know, Dr. Lewis covered this, but I think one thing uh, I would like to add, though, is that as time goes by, we are recognizing that ovarian cancer, even though as a term, uh, refers to one thing as we know it, but uh, when, when you dissect it out, it has so many different entities to it um, and then that also impacts on uh, the survival, um, where some cancers behave much more aggressively, whereas the others do not. Um, and, and then there's another uh, component of it where now we're recognizing that there's a large portion, about one in five uh, of ovarian cancer patients have a genetic component. So again, there are 
different reasons why women get it, and this is a even though it comes under the umbrella of the word ovarian cancer, these are multiple uh, types of diseases which we lump together. Uh, but more often than not, epithelial ovarian cancer is the one which we know as most often uh, the most aggressive cancer. Thank you for that. So the second question we had, I feel like we've answered it a bit. What are the symptoms or signs? Do you have anything to add to that, to that beyond what Dr. Lou said? Yeah, no, I think the, the main issue here is that uh, there have been studies done on this, actually, where we've looked at uh, symptoms, um, most notably by Dr. Barbara Goff from Seattle, uh, where they looked at the symptom inventory um, on how many times the women have the symptoms. And they came up with the answer that more than 12 times, if you have abdominal pelvic pain, sens pain sensation of bloating, um, if you eat and you feel like you're full already, um, and these symptoms are happening more than 12 times in a month, um, this is suspicious for ovarian cancer. Now, if somebody's had a history for a very long time for these symptoms, they might have another issue. Uh, but this, if, if, if you find these symptoms, just like you know, Rebecca said, even if your uh, primary care doctor or the person you're seeing um, thinks that no further evaluation needs to be done, but you know your body and you think that this needs to be escalated and further testing needs to be done, I think seeking another opinion is a right thing to do. Thank you. The, the, the next question that we have up, if I have symptoms, do I go to my gynecologist? Yes. So we're subspecialists, and uh, the gynecologists are accessible to everybody. Gynecologists are accustomed to doing pelvic exams. Unfortunately, we don't have a good screening test for ovarian cancer yet. There is no pap smear that diagnoses ovarian cancer. There is no mammogram that we have. So the, the best thing that we have is a physical exam with your gynecologist, a pelvic exam. Now, many women think that after they've finished having children, they don't need to go to the gynecologist anymore, but please go every month. I mean, every year. Nobody wants to go every month. <laughs> every year. Thank you. Yeah, I think in, in, the, in the community, uh, if, if the gynecologist is not available, the primary care doctors um, do take on this role and do a wonderful job. Um, and uh, they, they're trained uh, to look for these diseases. Um, so I think the short answer is yes. Okay, thank you. Now, you uh, touched on screening options. Could we talk about that a, a little bit more? Um, what options are there if, if the screening options are limited? Yeah. So I think um, for screening, the before I go into the details of the screening, I think you have to look at... Uh, why do we screen for cancers, right? And, and what is the good and the bad of the screening? And I think that's uh, the fundamental reason why we don't have a good screening test for ovarian cancer. Uh, when we are trying to screen for any cancer, what we want is a test which is accurate, uh, meaning it's picking up the people, uh, those who have cancer. And at the same time, we want a test which is not picking up people who do not have the cancer, but the test is labeling them that maybe you have ovarian cancer. The unfortunate reality for ovarian cancer is that all the things we've tried in terms of screening pick up a whole lot of women and label them as potentially having ovarian cancer. And then we start on investigating and sometimes doing surgeries on these women and eventually end up hurting more than helping and finding the ovarian cancer in, in, in the specific cohort of women which have been labeled as possible ovarian cancer. So that's where the problem lies in. So we've had multiple attempts, um, most notably the test which women uh, might have heard about is a CA125. 
Um, now, we use this test in treatment all the time, but as a screening, this test has not been very helpful. Um, it, you will end up, you know, about one in 100 women will have an elevated CA125 during the time of their menses, or they have an infection, or any other reason the test could be elevated. Um, and now you can, you're, you're labeling them, uh, or you may have an ovarian cancer, and they might end up getting surgery, and as I mentioned, that that could be a problem. So there have been other things which are the primarily uh, another test called HE4. There's been another, um, uh, one other big thing is the pelvic ultrasound, which has been looked at for screening. Um, and multiple trials, uh, most notice noticeable one, which was done in the United States called the PLCO trial, uh, was one of those trials where they looked at the CA125 and ultrasound to screen for cancers. And again, the result was the same, uh, where more women underwent surgery, but they didn't it didn't help in terms of the screening. So it's a long answer in saying, no, we don't have a good screening test at this point of time. The Society of G1 Oncologists, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists does not recommend screening in women who are low risk. Now there's a whole lot category of women who are high risk, and we can talk about that later, uh, where screening is indicated. But I think uh, if you have no family history and no genetic uh, predisposition to developing ovarian cancer, screening at this point of time is not recommended. Thank you for that. Anything to add, Dr. Lee? Well, I think that you touched upon this. If someone has high risk for ovarian cancer, then, you know, we need to be more vigilant about uh, looking for ovarian cancer in these patients. And those would be patients with a strong family history of ovarian cancer. Um, basically, all patients with ovarian cancer should be, have genetic testing. Genetic testing means not only checking their blood for a germline mutation, that means you're born with this mutation and it makes you more susceptible to breast cancer, usually breast and ovarian cancer. But now we know that we can test the tumor also for, for these mutations. And if you have a mutation in the tumor, it gives you a whole another avenue of treatment options. So it's very important that all of our patients get tested, genetic testing. Um, so those are the patients, family members of these patients should be um, treated in a separate category than the general population. Thank you for that. The next question we have coming up, are there different stages of ovarian cancer? Yes, all cancers have stages one, two, three, four. Usually stage one means that the cancer is limited to the primary organ, so ovarian cancer is limited to the ovaries. Stage two means it's spread to the pelvis. Stage three means it's spread into the abdomen. And stage four means it's gone to the liver or even the lungs or further. Um, unfortunately, many times we see patients who come to us with stage three or four disease already because the symptoms are so vague and we don't have a screening. I would say that when we find patients with a stage one cancer, it's typically in those families with a family history and we are you know, maybe they're having a prophylactic surgery um, and then we found it by mistake. It's not very often that we find this early stage of ovarian cancer. Anything to add, Dr. No, I think this is, um, you know, most of the cancers have this similar structure of staging, you know, starting in the organ to going at other places. And as Rebecca mentioned, that the unfortunate reality in ovarian cancer is most, like about 75% of the patients are stage three or above. Um, and that's something which, is directly related to the fact that we don't have a screening test. Okay, thank you for that answer. Um, next question we have up with regards to diagnosis. If I do have an elevated CA125 level, 
Does it always mean you have ovarian cancer? What else could it be? Yeah, I mentioned a few possibilities of that. Uh, number one is that why was the CA125 test done? Right? Was it done in, in hopes of screening for ovarian cancer or was it done for another reason? So that, that, that would be important. But then if it's elevated, it has to be put in the context of family history, which will put you into a higher risk. Uh, but otherwise, there are a host of different reasons uh, why CA125 could be elevated. Uh, anything which will irritate the inside lining of your abdomen will elevate the CA125, whether it's an infection, uh, endometriosis, uh, uh, patients, even some of them who have fibroids which are growing could, could elevate CA125. Uh, so it's a very non-specific test. It, could, it just tells you there's something going on in the abdomen. That something could be anything, not specifically ovarian cancer. I really want to reiterate that. It's very important that people don't think that CA125 is a magic test because pregnancy can elevate your CA125, any liver kind disease. of liver disease, basically any kind of itis, any kind of infection in the belly will make your CA125 go up. So um, I know a lot of people put a lot of stock in that number, but it's, it's not black and white. It's kind of a gray issue. Yeah. Thank you for reiterating that. Thank you. Um, next question we have up. Now, you've, you've touched on genetic, genetic uh, issues a few answers ago. This question is, if there is a family history of ovarian cancer, should I have genetic testing done? The first person to get tested should be the person who had the ovarian cancer. If that person is negative, then all the relatives, it, it's less likely that the, you know, the daughters and the sisters would have that mutation. So that's the most important thing. Um, if we're unable to test that patient, then we can do um, a family pedigree and basically take a very detailed family history and then determine um, by the results of that if that person should have blood testing or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I think one of the other things I want to add to this uh, question of, about genetic testing is that over a period of time, our understanding is that one in five epithelial ovarian cancer, which is the most uh, uh, aggressive cancer, one in five of those patients, when you screen them, will have a genetic component. So then we start drilling down into their family members and we'll find a lot of patients who have the same mutation, specifically BRCA1 or 2. Then we have an option, uh, or, or now they can undergo surgeries to either remove the breast or remove tubes and ovaries when, uh, when they're done with childbearing, when, when they decide with their provider the time is right, we can prevent a lot of cancers from happening. The other thing I want to add here is the question about genetic testing is we're in interesting times because uh, the FDA just approved uh, you know, some of the kits from California where, where you can do BRCA1 and 2 genes yourself. Uh, there's a lot of discussion happening in the community as to what does it all mean. Uh, but our stand is the same, that if you think there's a family history, there's a strong family history of ovarian cancer, talk to your doctor, talk to your provider. Uh, and as Rebecca mentioned, uh, going into and drilling down into the details of the family history and talking to a genetic counselor to figure out what tests are right. Because BRCA1, 2 are just the tip of the iceberg. There are other genetic uh, tests which are available with, which predispose you to these cancers. So I think uh, th those are available to you uh, because they are approved in the FDA and you can do those testings. But if those are negative and you have a family history of ovarian cancer, that doesn't take you off the hook. Um, but it could be other things you need to be looked uh, at, and, and I think discussion with your doctor is important for that. 
I think it's really important for people to see a genetic counselor because if you have a test result, somebody needs to explain it to you. <laughs> you know, it, it's really unhelpful if you have a, you know, yes or no. You don't know how to interpret it. So it's very important to speak to a genetic counselor. And I feel like this next question kind of flows perfectly on from that. If I have BRCA1 or 2 genes, should I get a hysterectomy if not diagnosed with ovarian cancer? I think if you have a BRCA1 or 2 gene, you should be hooked in the system talking to an expert who takes care of patients who have BRCA1 and 2 genes. These discussions are often very nuanced. Uh, I mean, the risk of cancer is not a static thing. As you age, your risk goes up. Um, and the risk is different for BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, and uh, having a discussion with a team which, is, uh, which has the expertise in dealing with these issues uh, will not only help you make this decision, but can also help you fulfill some, you know, if you're at an age where uh, you're hoping to uh, have children, uh, then you can work with this team and see, you know, what is the best time where you can reduce your risk of having cancer, but also fulfill, uh, you know, your fertility. Um, other, you know, having a risk reduction mastectomy is an option, but again, having a discussion with this team is super important. So, uh, answer to your question, should I be getting hysterectomy? Um, you know, that, that's a question we don't have the answer yet. Um, that's a much more detailed question. Even when we do propose surgeries in patients with BRCA1 and 2, we usually remove tubes and ovaries and leave the uterus. Um, however, there's some new research which shows that they have an increased risk of endometrial or uterine cancer. Uh, but we don't have any society recommendations on this. This, is, this, this question is actively being debated right now uh, in our society to come up with the question whether hysterectomy is worth it or not. I'll just add that you know, our teams taking care of patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutations or even uh, other mutations that predispose you to ovarian cancer are multidisciplinary teams. So there are surgeons and there are medical oncologists and radiation oncologists and there's a whole team, plastic surgeons. It's not just one person you'll see. You'll need to see a whole team and get all of your options so they can make a good decision. Yeah. And then the other uh, last point I would like to make with BRCA1 and 2 is Breast and ovarian are the most common cancers, uh, but that also predisposes, BRCA predisposes you to other cancers as well. Um, so, you know, we have a focus in ovarian cancer, so we always think about ovarian cancer, um, and we are here to discuss ovarian cancer, but that, uh, you know, we should not forget that these mutations predispose you to, you know, gastrointestinal cancers, for example, pancreatic cancers. So, you know, that it just highlights the importance of having a team which is, used to taking care of these patients. Thank you, thank you for that. And the, the final diagnosis question, or the last one that we have up right now, life expectancy, how long would I have to live after being diagnosed? That is a I'll give that to you. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think it, 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 let me circle back to the statement we made earlier, right? Ovarian cancer is not, um, a one disease, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think if you have a cancer uh, which is not as aggressive and was uh, diagnosed at an early stage, uh, whether it was picked up because uh, you were going to your doctor and they felt a mass during the exam or you, had, you were having an ultrasound for something else, or it was caught at a later stage but still not an aggressive cancer, or um, you, know, you underwent the right treatments, uh, the life expectancy could differ a lot. Um, you know, Rebecca could tell you she's been practicing a lot longer than I, but I have inherited some patients from a, you know, few of my partners 
um, they've had ovarian cancers and they're alive at 10 years, 15 years. Um, so it's not, uh, even though the numbers on the, on the websites and everything will give you a summary that oh, the, the statistics is, you know, five-year survival in ovarian cancer is 40%. Um, that can be very misleading um, and, and, frankly, disheartening because this number includes a lot of women who are diagnosed later in the age when they are older and they are not able to, uh, they have other comorbidities, they have heart disease. Um, you know, if somebody is in their 80s and 90s, their risk is different than somebody who's diagnosed in their 30s and 40s. Um, so it's difficult to put all this together. Um, the, the number 40 to 45% in five years is a very oversimplification of the facts. Um, so I don't have a good answer to that question, but I think it, it varies. You know, I think that is a good answer. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like you should always be on the hook for bespoke answers to, to some of these very, very right. specific questions. But I really appreciate, I appreciate these answers. You know, I also would reiterate that you'll see all these statistics and numbers on websites, but it's not one size fits all. You know, there's a kind of a continuum, and we're always um, discovering new treatments. For example, now immunotherapy is very hot. We didn't have that five or ten years ago. And I think we're starting to treat ovarian cancer more like high blood pressure. It's a chronic disease. We keep treating it, it comes back, we treat it again. We might have another treatment. We might have a clinical trial. And so the treatment now is different than it was five years ago even. So. Thank you. And I think you read my mind a little bit because we're going to move on to treatment options. Mm-hmm. What treatment options are available? So uh, i start with this. Um, one of the things which, you know, uh, most of my research uh, is in looking at uh, whether women with ovarian cancer get the right treatment when they get diagnosed. Uh, the unfortunate reality in the United States is only about 60 to 70 percent of the women get the right treatment. Um, so that that's something we can make um, a lot of difference because if everybody got the correct treatment, um, you know, we, we would have a bigger chunk of women who would be cured from the disease right up front. Um, and even when the cancer comes back, having had the right treatment before, pushes the recurrences farther, um, so puts you at a, at a better uh, you know, track. Um, in general, uh, for a cancer, which is the most common scenario we see is generally women in their 60s to 70s, they would have cancer usually in the stage three disease. Uh, what they need at that time is a combination chemotherapy and surgery. Um, so what we found in our research is sometimes they get the chemo but not the surgery. Sometimes the surgery is done but not the combination chemotherapy. They only get one drug. Um, those are the things which you know we can make a huge difference with uh, by giving the right treatment. Uh, but generally, it's a combination of uh, treatment and surgery. The other thing I want to emphasize in the treatment of ovarian cancer is who treats your ovarian cancer matters. Um, you know, we, Rebecca and I and our partners here in GYN Oncology are... Uh, obstetrics and gynecology trained, but specializing in only treating cancers in women. So we don't uh, do anything else but treat these cancers. Um, and there's data to support that women who actually see gynecologists uh, during their treatment have better survivals. Um, so even if they are getting treatment from um, closer to home, if there's not a gynecologist available, the guidelines, uh, both from the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Society of Gynecologic Oncologists, are that at some point a consultation with the gynecologist is 
uh, should have happened. Uh, and then they could get chemotherapy closer to home with medical oncologists. Uh, uh, but the surgery part, I, you know, we're specially trained to do these surgeries. Sometimes these surgeries last for six to eight hours. Um, and how much effort is made in these surgeries uh, directly translates to uh, the survival in these patients. Um, so seeing a G1 oncologist uh, and also participating in a discussion with your doctor, am I getting standard of care? Uh, and this, this line is relevant to any cancer. Am I getting the standard of care? Um, uh, is something which people can do to you know, improve their chances in getting treatment. I think we should highlight that there are websites where people can check to see that they're getting the standard of care treatment through the National Cancer Institute, um, through the NCCN. There's a link for patients, there's a link for physicians, and there are kind of hyperlinks, so it'll take you to other websites. You know, if I have this, I should be getting A, B, C, D. You know. Great. And for those watching live, we'll get those links and, and post them up afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, what is listed on that uh, document may not be the right thing for you. But putting it out in front of your doctor and having a discussion, why am I not getting this, is helpful. Because then you get the satisfaction that, okay, my physician has looked through everything and they've made a choice of doing this because maybe my kidney's not doing as well as other people, so that's why they decided to do a different kind of chemotherapy. Uh, but I think uh, as, as uh, uh, patients, we should, you know, they not, should not shy away from asking these questions um, and you know, holding us to a higher standard. Are we doing the standard of care or not? Great, thank you. Another treatment question here. With newer options, how do you treat ovarian cancer as a chronic disease, as you mentioned? Well, we have many uh, treatment options for chemotherapy, and it's, it's, it's not a black and white question. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to revert back to our discussion about genetic testing, because that's most relevant. Since 2007, uh, the National Cancer Institute has asked us to refer all patients with ovarian cancer to a genetic counselor. But only about one in five women are referred to a genetic counselor. We know that. But in the last year, um, some new treatments have opened up for patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. They're called PARP inhibitors. And now that we have different treatment options for patients with these genetic mutations, more patients are getting tested. Okay, So um, these treatments are open to patients who have mutations, genetic uh, germline mutations, and also somatic mutations in their tumors. So, you know what, if you didn't get tested, your tumor didn't get tested 10 years ago when you were diagnosed, we're, we're gonna test your tumor now because you might be eligible to be treated with these new medications that are oral chemotherapy agents. There are also um, immunotherapy tr clinical trials that are open and this is really, I think, a new area of treatment for all cancer patients, really retraining or re-educating your immune system to fight your cancer. It's, I think, very exciting. Um, and a lot of these are oral medications that people can take at home. Sometimes they're taken in conjunction with regular chemotherapy. So it, there, it's very nuanced. There are many clinical trials open. Again, there's another website, um, clinicaltrials.gov, which we will post. Um, but it will list. You can search for your cancer type, where you live, how far you're willing to travel. And then I guess we can mention different kinds of clinical trials. They're, it's kind of confusing for people. So there's phase one clinical trials, which means they're testing for side effects of a new drug. It might help you, we don't know. 
Phase two trials means that there's activity probably in your drug. We really want to make sure that it's going to work in ovarian cancer. Phase three trials are the best because that means we have a new drug and it's going up against the gold standard. So if anybody finds a phase three trial that they can get into, you need to try to get into that. So. Yeah, so, you know, I, I just want to clarify something about the, when we use the word chronic disease. I, I don't want people to think that ovarian cancer is treated just like diabetes. You know, it's much more serious than it that. Is. Um, um, but uh, we often, in our conversations, will call it a chronic disease, which is in, in some way, uh, you know, we're a little optimistic about it. Um, when you go and talk to people maybe 20 years ago and you mentioned the word ovarian cancer, uh, mortality was very, very high. Um, you know, most women uh, would not live as long as they do now. Um, and, and partly because, as Rebecca mentioned, we have multiple different kinds of treatments, the drugs which have come up. Um, so they go on living longer. Uh, now, the best thing is if they didn't have this cancer, but, you know, sometimes we get stuck with the hand we are dealt with. Uh, but in, even in those circumstances, if they're taking the drugs orally or once a week, they're coming and getting a chemo, and they go on and they can carry on for a number of years and do things which are important to them, you know, in their personal life, um, it, it gets labeled as a, you know, something you live with. That's what the definition of a chronic disease is. Um, but two and two are not equal. Uh, we, we, we recognize that. Uh, but I, I think still we, we find this, you know, exciting that, you know, women with ovarian cancer can go on and live longer than what they did before. I mean, I guess I should clarify because I'm the one who's <laughs> had to treat it like a chronic disease. Yeah. I mean, the best case scenario is you treat somebody and they're cured. Yes. You don't see the cancer. Yeah. Yeah. The next best scenario is you treat somebody and their disease is stable. It doesn't change, but they can yeah. still live their life and they have a good quality of life. They can do the things they want to do. Absolutely. If, you treat, if you're treating somebody and their cancer is not responding to the treatment, that's when we need to change. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, one more treatment question. After treatment, what's the likelihood of ovarian cancer recurrence? High. Um, very high. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people, uh, so when, when somebody gets the treatment, they've gotten the right treatment, they've gotten the standard of care treatment, um, what we see is that at five years, um, for somebody with advanced cancer, uh, somewhere from three to four women uh, would be alive, um, and an even smaller fraction would be completely cured. Um, so it is really important to continue following up with your doctor so they can keep an eye at it and make sure that if the recurrence was discovered, that it's discovered early enough so that the treatment can be started. Um, but it does put you at a, at, at a, at a, at a difficult place, right? Because you're living in the shadows of this disease where you're always thinking, is it going to come back? So I tell my patients all the time that, you know, for our perspective, when we are done with the treatment, we believe that everybody's cured until they are not. Because otherwise, it becomes very difficult to carry on with your life thinking that this is going to come back. We do keep a really close eye on patients. So after they finish their initial treatment, we'll see them very often, every three months. And then as time goes on, the risk of a recurrence drops off. So we will space out their appointments. And you know we try to celebrate a little bit at when we reach different milestones. Um, so, but we keep close contact with our patients. <laughs> Um, we're going to move on to some more of our questions now. What kinds of support groups are there for people with ovarian cancer? 
There are multiple um, support groups. There's, I think I'll mention Mioka on the <laughs> Michigan Ovarian Cancer Alliance. It was started by a patient at the University of Michigan who was a nurse, and her daughter, Pam Dahman, is also a nurse, and they started this enormous network, I think, that um, includes not just University of Michigan patients, but patients from all over the state, and they've had um, information courses for patients that are free of charge. Um, we'll have support. People who come will and give talks about treatment options. Genetic counselors have given talks. We'll have talks about um, alternative medicine at these meetings. And uh, they meet monthly. You know, I know there's a Gilda's Club meeting on the other side of town, so there's multiple groups, but I think it's really important to for patients to feel um, like they're part of a community and they're not going through this process alone because it's very difficult to go through alone and they need the social support of people that are going through it at the same time. Not only their family members and friends, but other patients. I think it's very, very helpful for them. Thank you for, for fielding this, this broad range of, of questions. The next one that we have up, are there ways to prevent ovarian cancer? I think uh, one of the good things about uh, prevention is obviously we don't have to deal with any of this um, disease-related issues. Uh, and, and when I say, you know, you can break this question down into two different categories. One is the general lifestyle things that you can do, which will reduce your risk for all cancers. And then there are things you can do specifically in ovarian cancer. So, you know, I can I can answer both of them. Um, the the lifestyle things which which are, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, keeping uh, 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 your weight in check because there was a report just now recently that in women, um, the overweight is becoming the number one reason of developing more cancers, even more so than smoking. Uh, so that's, that's number one. Uh, you know, regular exercising, maybe vigorous exercising for about 30 minutes, uh, something which makes you winded. You can't have a conversation with someone. So that's that kind of exercise. Uh, but after talking to your doctor, if it's safe to do so. Um, and then, uh, you know, eating healthy, uh, going to, you know, some of the uh, websites from the NIH and seeing what, what that entails. It's a huge conversation in, in general. Uh, but all those healthy lifestyle issues will, will reduce your risk of developing any cancer. Mm -hmm. But ovarian cancer specifically, uh, we know uh, one intervention which is definitely helpful is oral contraceptive pills. So if, if you're... Um, in uh, premenopausal, uh, and there are no contraindications to starting oral contraceptive pills, um, then uh, you know oral contraceptive pills can reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. Uh, the, the pills make the, the ovary has um, uh, forms a cyst uh, when it ovulates every month, and the oral contraceptive pills, by design, reduce that and and have uh, an ability to reduce on a population level the ovarian cancer. Uh, so that's one some, something specific. Do you want to add something other for ovarian cancer prevention? Well, I would say, you know, people might say, you know, what makes me at high risk, what makes me at low risk for ovarian cancer? Basically, the less you ovulate, the better for <laughs> yes. ovarian yes. cancer yes. risk. So yeah. birth control pills um, decreases your number of ovulations you have. Somebody, Andy Burchuk at Duke, did a study. He counted number of lifetime ovulations, and if you had many more lifetime ovulations, you were at a higher risk for ovarian cancer. So mm -hmm. if you've had more children or if you breastfeed, that also decreases your risk of ovarian cancer because it stops ovulation. 
For some reason, tubal ligation also decreases your risk. Yes. We don't really know why, but now we think that ovarian cancer might start in the end of the fallopian tube, so removing the fallopian tube has something to do with it, even if the ovary is still there. Um, and all the high, healthy lifestyle choices you said, you know, really reducing your weight is key. Yeah, I think that uh, Rebecca brings a really important point that um, women who, uh, this, is, this is applicable to a very specific population. If, if you're done with childbearing and you were having a C-section, and in the C-section you were asked a question, do you want to have more children? And the answer is no. Uh, in the past we would tie the tube, now we just take the entire tube out. Um, I, I think that's something uh, which we uh, think will reduce the risk of ovarian cancer because there's some newer research which is coming up which is showing uh, that a lot of these ovarian cancers actually start in the tube. Um, so this is still an area of active investigation. Uh, we don't yet recommend that women, uh, once they're done childbearing, uh, go and electively remove their tubes. This is still an area of active investigation. There are no recommendations on that yet. Uh, but definitely in the high-risk population, uh, if you have a strong family history, again, talking to the genetic counselor, you'll definitely be you know, steered towards a direction where uh, tubes and ovaries are removed once you're done childbearing. Um, so I think um, these are all possible ways of reducing ovarian cancer. So you both mentioned weight as a prevention. Can it affect your recovery as well? Recovery from treatment. Um, yes, I think that um, obesity is associated with so many different uh, things that affect your health. High blood pressure, your risk of heart attack, all these other things. You know, this all contributes to how we can treat you. You know, our treatment is sort of limited by what you can tolerate physically and emotionally, but physically also. Some of the drugs affect your heart. So if your heart is not in good condition, we can't give you that chemotherapy. We have to consider all the different parts of you, not just the cancer. We have to consider you as a whole. So um, re even just recovery from surgery is. Uh, really improved if you have good physical health going into surgery. We know that if you are a walker and you regularly walk at even just two weeks before surgery, you're going to do better with surgery. So being physically active is always a plus. Um, reducing your weight, there's some, so, some people ask, is sugar bad? Is cancer like sugar? Is it okay if I eat candy? Um, I think that everything in balance is a good, a good, good rule of thumb. I think the obesity is, 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 is a huge uh, uh, topic in, in this setting, but I think overall, um, I would say we poorly understand the obesity. Um, you know, we don't know why some people gain more weight than others. Um, you know, that's an area which is you know, heavily being investigated right now, that how we can stop uh, the obesity crisis we have. Uh, but the short answer is yes, those who are uh, already at a higher weight um, at every stage of the treatment, it is slightly more difficult for us. Um, that doesn't stop us from doing our best, but overall, if you were to compare patients uh, in, in terms of their surgical outcomes, uh, patients who are overweight, there's higher risk of infection in the incisions. Uh, surgery in general is a little bit more difficult, so that does affect their outcomes. Uh, later on in the treatment when we have chemotherapy, then uh, it is really important that uh, some of the work done in the University of Michigan by Dr. Griggs, uh, who's one of the medical oncologists here, is uh, you know showed that 
patients who were higher weight got less chemotherapy because the protocols which were uh, which had a weight restriction or a limit were not giving the entire amount of chemotherapy which was recommended yeah. for these patients. So there are lots of nuances in this, uh, but yes, that can negatively affect you. Um, uh, so it should stay on people's radar in terms of a prevention that by uh, taking an active approach uh, in their weight management, they can reduce uh, risk of lots of different diseases, not just ovarian cancer. Thank you for that. The next question, do supplements or vitamins help reduce the risk of getting or having a recurrence of ovarian cancer? Oh, I'll, do you mind if I take this no. one? No, <laughs> please. Yeah, you know, I, I say this because this is a question which is very, uh, you know, I, I'm very passionate about this subject. Um, and the reason for this is uh, that uh, the evidence uh, supporting this is it, it's close to zero. Uh, there, there are two aspects to this. Number one is, uh, you know, I would recommend people who are really interested in knowing about this conversation is uh, Frontline from PBS did a huge one-hour documentary on supplements in the United States. It's not an FDA-regulated uh, market. Um, and specifically in that commentary, there were two issues they mentioned. Number one was uh, when you're taking supplements, there was an issue that are you getting the supplement which they are claiming is in there? Uh, and the second thing was the efficacy, uh, the dosing, um, especially in vitamin D, some of the brands which were selling it had wide ranges of it. The other issue is we've not had any study which shows that by taking these vitamins and minerals and uh, that people have reduced the risk of cancer. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, study after study which has come out has shown that these, thing, these interventions are not helpful. Now, if somebody is deficient in a vitamin because of a reason, uh, because the diet they choose or maybe they have some uh, GI malfunction and, and their physician thinks that they should be supplemented for that vitamin, I am not talking about that population. I'm talking about in general people who are able to he eat a healthy lifestyle. Um, so I think um, the last thing I would say is that if you have a cancer um, and if we presumed that your cells and your body did really well with vitamins, so will the cancer cells. Uh, you know, you're feeding them in addition to yourself. So no matter how I look at it, I personally cannot come to a conclusion that these things are helpful. There are no recommendations from our societies that people should take supplements to prevent or treat cancer uh, with minerals and vitamins. Um, so I am not in the favor of that, uh, but I think this is a question which um, will surface again and again and there's a Active. I think it's very confusing yeah. to people because when they get diagnosed with cancer, all of their friends and family will say, oh, I heard you should take this, 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 and this. Yeah. And if you have an inflammatory state, you're more likely to have cancer. And I do think that inflammation is associated with cancer, but it's important to rec recognize that we don't have an FDA for herbal supplements, okay? Even if it says you're getting curcumin, you don't know what the soil conditions were, what it's contaminated with. It's not regulated the way other medications are regulated. So it's always a better idea to get these nutrients through your food than by taking supplements. Yeah. So I usually tell my patients that if you want to do it and you, you, know, you think that this is important to you, um, you know, don't spend a fortune on it. Make sure you're getting it from the right source and make sure that they're not making you sick. You know, anything, including other supplements, which Rebecca mentioned in treatment of cancer, uh, sometimes we'll get questions like, you know, I've heard online that this particular thing is really good for treating cancer. Uh, I don't know. We don't have a study to support for or against. 
So in that setting, if they're taking it and they feel good, um, I just tell them that you know, if, if you start developing side effects which were not in line with the chemotherapy we are giving you, then you know, obviously the next uh, thing to blame would be the possible supplements. Uh, so. It's also yeah. important that you tell your doctor what you're taking because yes. some of the things, if you're taking very high doses of antioxidants, it may counteract the effect of the chemotherapy. That's really if true. you're taking a lot of garlic and fish oil, those are blood thinners. We need to know that you're doing that before you go to surgery. So yes. always bring your bag of pills to the doctor's office yeah. so we can look at them. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and next question we have up, can you get pregnant after diagnosis and treatment? Yes. yes. If during the surgery the, um, the uterus and both ovaries were not removed. Mm -hmm. uh, in younger patients, uh, you know, uh, if specifically uh, within the spectrum of ovarian cancer, they are much more likely to have uh, cancers which are low grade, uh, not as aggressive, but even high grade, super aggressive cancers can happen in women in childbearing age. And in those settings, uh, sometimes it's a shared decision making uh, on fertility preservation, um, one thing I would say is that if they are in this unfortunate scenario that they have ovarian cancer uh, and they are about to embark on a treatment, seeing a fertility expert is, is really important. Now, if somebody's had the treatment, they're free of disease, they have a uterus and an ovaries, even one, uh, the next question then is, uh, do, did the chemotherapy affect their ovaries in a negative way that they're not functioning? Most of the the treatments we do in ovarian cancer are not as toxic to the ovaries. So generally, they recover the function, and if they're menstruating, yes, they can have children. Thank you for that. Next question we have up, can talc powder give me ovarian cancer? There's a lot of um, discussion about this, and I think we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't really know. I think this conversation has been going on for many, many years. And uh, I don't think anybody's really doing rigorous research on this because how can you do research on this? Yeah. You know, there's no model. You can't have a control group and you can't expose patients to talc on purpose because we just don't know. And there's, there's not really great animal models for ovarian cancer other than chickens. And I mean, there's, there's not a good way to study that. So uh, we don't really know. Thank you. Best to avoid it, I guess, would be the answer at this point. Next question we have up, are there environmental causes for ovarian cancer? <laughs> Sounds like that's a tricky one too. I think this is all along the lines of talc. Yeah. There's no yeah. specifics about this. We can't say that if you live in this area, you're at danger, in danger of having ovarian cancer. We cannot say, for example, like lung cancer, if you smoke, you're gonna get, you're at uh -huh. high risk for lung cancer. We can't really say that about anything for ovarian cancer. We just don't know. So, uh, you know, you maintain a healthy lifestyle and you eat more fruits and vegetables than, you know, processed food. That's all we know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What is the difference between ovarian cancer and an ovarian cyst? It's, um, you know, I'll go back to those Venn diagram analogies, like where they say, you know, all dogs are animals, but not animals are dogs. All ovarian cancers can have cysts in them, but all cysts are not ovarian cancer, if it makes sense. So yeah, right. you can have cysts which, have, which are not 
ovarian cancer. You can have normal cysts, you can have cysts uh, which are completely benign, they have no cancer in them. Um, but regardless of that, if you have small cysts on an ultrasound, which was done for whatever reason, uh, women in their uh, premenopausal years will always have cysts. Uh, the, then, you know, generally the gynecologist will repeat the scans unless they're very large cysts. Um, in those settings, uh, nevertheless, I think that the short answer is that they should be investigated. If somebody's done an uh, ultrasound and there are multiple cysts, it could be a polycystic ovarian disease. Um, so cyst is basically saying that there's a, uh, a small enclosed area with a little bit of fluid inside of it. Uh, now, whether it's an indication that this cyst is an ovarian cancer or not, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it is. And when you serially follow these, you do an ultrasound and it's growing, and that's how some patients get referred to us, that they had cysts and they are growing, and they've done a CA125 level in this patient, it's elevated, all these things are pointing that they might have cancer. Uh, we'll typically go in and remove these and, and figure out whether this is cancerous cysts or benign cysts. Um, more often than not, they're benign, um, which is good. Uh, but no cysts should be completely ignored. But if it's a discussion with the doctor and they think that this is not a cyst you should be worried about, then let them take care of it. I mean, all women have cysts because every time you ovulate, you make a cyst. cyst. So it it depends on the context. You know, how old are you and where are you in your menstrual cycle? You know, how big is it? How long has it been there? So it's a conversation to have with your gynecologist. Yeah. And the gynecologist, if they need us, they will call us and say, could you please see this patient? Tell me what you think. And then we have a conversation about it. We so, get much more yes. alarmed when the cysts are happening in somebody who's postmenopausal. Yeah. Just because they're in that age group, the ovarian cancer is more common. And uh, after you're done, uh, you're postmenopausal and you're not making cysts regularly on the ovary, why should there be a cyst? So we, we get a lot more alarmed uh, in that setting. Thank you. We're into the final 10 minutes here. It looks like we've got a couple of questions left. This one is looking forward. Where do you see the future of ovarian cancer diagnosis and treatment going? I think there's a lot of excitement about uh, looking for screening tests. And um, so, as I, we mentioned earlier, there's no pap smear or mammogram for ovarian cancer, but people are finding out that if you have a certain type of bacteria in your system, you're more likely to have colon cancer. I think we're going to find that with ovarian cancer. And it, I think it's not really the bacteria, but it's your immune system. What, can, what does your immune system do with, with different types of infection? And how does your immune system get rid of abnormal cells? So I think that screening and treatment is all going to come down to, you know, how can we kind of tune up your immune system? I think that's a really big area of research. Yeah. I think if you break it down into like three different buckets, you know, there's a bucket of what Rebecca mentioned about this pre- uh, before you develop the cancer, the prevention strategies and early detection. That's like this one uh, area, and I think that's the area we have to focus the most on. Uh, because for everything you do, uh, you'll prevent the cancers and you don't have to deal with the aftermath, what happens. Um, the second bucket is, you know, this is the part where I do the, most of my research is that once you've developed the cancer, making sure that everybody's getting the right treatment. Um, so, you know, if you can imagine a world where, you know, 100% of the women got the standard of care when they got treated, or they got genetic testing all the time, their family members who uh, tested positive got their tubes and ovaries removed uh, at the right time after a discussion with their physician. Now we've reduced the number of cancers. So that's where, you know, I focus. And, 
Uh, Rebecca's had a lab for a long period of time. Dr. McLean, who's one of our partners, uh, who is actively studying. Kathy Cho is another for Michigan Medicine uh, uh, ovarian cancer researcher. They are focusing on newer treatments that, you know, why some cancers stop responding to chemotherapy. How can we reverse that uh, mechanism that they continue to uh, be uh, sensitive to chemotherapies or trying to develop newer drugs? So in all three buckets, there's a lot of activity which is happening. Uh, and then the immunotherapy question, uh, and I think there's lots of clinical trials which are coming in the pipeline. Um, you know, how they do in ovarian cancer is a question, you know, to be determined. Um, but uh, we, we're optimistic uh, in, in this. There was a, sti there was a st statistic you gave earlier about the percentage of patients who aren't getting the correct treatment. Could you give that to me one more time? Yeah, so it, in our research, we've looked at uh, from the National Cancer Database that 60 to 70% of the patients are not getting standard of care treatment. Um, and when you look at it, um, especially there's a lot of disparities in cancer care. Uh, you know, there's, there's disparity of race, there's disparity of ethnicity, there's the biggest disparity in ovarian cancer we see is the geographical disparity. Uh, if you are from a rural area where there's no access to a GYN oncologist or, frankly, an oncologist, it is much more likely that you will not be getting a standard of care because it's difficult to travel 10, 8 hours, uh, you know, and we see this firsthand. A lot of our patients are from the Upper Peninsula. Uh, you know, we uh, we try to work with the physicians over there, and they're amazing people out there. Uh, you know, they refer patients to us and uh, co-manage the patients with us. Um, so, you know, it's it's we see the challenges. You know, how difficult it is. Um, in other states, I think similar challenges are happening. Uh, and then the last disparity is the age disparity. Um, when you're older, sometimes uh, standard of care treatments not given. People don't do aggressive surgery. Um, now, I'm not advocating aggressive surgery on people who are older and they have a high risk from, uh, you know, having complications during the surgery, but there's a population, as populations aging and people are healthier, you know, the chronologic number should not mean anything. What, what we should take into account is how is their functional status. You know, if somebody is 80 and they're driving their car and they're going shopping themselves, they're living alone, they're doing everything, they should get the treatment the same way somebody in their 50s would. Um, but we, time and time again, we see as you age, you don't get the same treatments. Um, so that, that, that's uh, something we can do now, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to hoping for newer treatments to come and newer tests to show up. Thank you. And as we, as we wrap up this, this live chat, let's, uh, let's have one final question. If you could do a brief recap, give me some more statistics of ovarian cancer, when to see a doctor, prevention tips, anything else you'd like to share for our final five minutes? <laughs> I want people <laughs> to nice remember that you can cut your risk of ovarian cancer in half by taking the birth control pill for at least five years. If you don't have a contraindication to that, that's important to note. Um, don't ignore the symptoms. Ovarian cancer is not really a silent disease. Really pay attention to how you're feeling. See your doctor, see your gynecologist regularly. Um, do you have more to add? No, I think this, you know, these things with the genetic testing we've talked about, these, these are really important. And I'm, um, you know, I would urge people to be a participant, an active participant in their treatment um, for themselves or their loved ones if they unfortunately have this disease. Um, and, and saying, you know, figuring out from some credible websites what should be done and is it being done. And if not, 
having a conversation with the physician, why not? Um, and as I mentioned before, the, there might be good reasons why it's not happening, but that knowledge is you know, super helpful. Um, so in addition to all this, one other thing uh, before, since we are running out of time, I want to mention is, uh, you know, a lot of things we mentioned uh, uh, where the research is necessary, for example, in the, uh, in the early testing phase or in treatment or making sure people are getting the right treatment, uh, you know, th these research uh, endeavors need money, right? Uh, and, and money comes from uh, some of the National Institute uh, of Health, NCI, National Cancer Institute, um, grants. Uh, you know, our group has shown and we presented this data in Society of Genome Oncology, there's a huge disparity uh, in uh, funding in ovarian cancer. Um, for how lethal this cancer is, uh, we uh, get a fraction of money to study this cancer as opposed to lung cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer. Um, now, you know, the mo whenever I talk about this, I get an argument that, yeah, but those cancers are really common. But one thing people forget is that the number of women we are losing with this cancer actually put it really high on that list. And the number of life years lost, because a lot of women develop this cancer in their 50s and 60s, you know, if life expectancy in the United States is 80, we're losing 30 years of life. So we, uh, you know, people should get, you know, uh, uh, reach out to, uh, uh, their elected members and, and say that, you know, there should be some equitable form of distribution of NIH dollars in, in studying these diseases. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that we'll have cures in other cancers, but not in this disease. Uh, and that, that, that worries me, and we'll be left behind, and unfortunately, gynecologic cancers are being left behind. We found the same thing in endometrial cancer, which is a uterus cancer, and in cervix cancer. Um, you know, we need money to be able to do this. Um, and uh, frankly, what we are asking for is grants. You know, these are scientifically vetted grants, not, not donations. Uh, so, you know, this is super important in this, in this field. It's very important. We need to do these large clinical trials that, you know, national trials, not just in one institution, trials that include patients from all over the country. Because ovarian cancer is not common. So we need to be able to study large groups of patients. Yeah, we have no shortage of brilliant minds, um, and what they need is, uh, you know, some money to, you know, help their research efforts so we can move a needle on this cancer. Well, thank you. I think that wraps up today's chat. Thank you both for your time mm -hmm. and expertise, guiding us through all these nuanced answers. I think this has been very, very valuable. Thank you for listening, and tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org.